So the funeral would take place in the parlor portion of the home. So if you envision a Victorian house in the parlor area where people would come and, and gather for parties, but then when somebody died, they'd gather for a funeral. The wake would be for three days to prove that they were true in fact dead and not going to wake up. Because it was learned in the 15th and 16th time, uh, 15th and 16th century, they learned that people were being buried alive. And so the wake was a tradition to help curtail that. Hello and welcome to All the Above. I'm James Brown. Thanks for joining me. You can check out my work at jamesbrowntv.substack.com. Paid subscribers get episodes early and other perks. It's there I make podcasts about the things that unite us and the people obsessed with them. It's in that spirit that I present to you a series called Completing the Circle. It's about death and dying and the people who embrace it every day. Like today's guest, Genevieve Kini Vasquez. She spent her whole life wanting to work in these fields. And she has. As a funeral director, an army medical officer, a palliative nurse, and most recently as president and CEO of the National Museum of Funeral History. She was fascinating, revealing, and eloquent. Everything you can ask for in a guest. Find me on any platform at James Brown TV and tell me what you think. You can also email me at jamesbrowntv at gmail.com. And now, my conversation with Genevieve Kini Vasquez. When I got out of the military, I went into pal- being a palliative care nurse um, um, while I was going through funeral directing school. And it's a part-time job. And I literally was only going to stay there until I finished school. But then I ended up being able, I ended up getting the job at the museum, which we haven't even had a chance to talk about, which is amazing too. Um, But so um, I got the job at the museum and I said, well, I would, you know, love to stay on at the hospital because to me, I feel like I get the best of both worlds. Right. I get to be with my families. I get to care for the dying. I get to care for my fellow comrades. Um, And to me, that is very honorable. Um, But at the same time, I look at the museum as like a blank palette. It's my it's my it's my platform to be able to educate people about death. Um, and, And I remember when I was in the military. And I had a, a father who had a really bad asthma attack and it rendered him into the ICU and the family had to get sent overseas uh, to make the hard decision of letting him go because he was brain dead. He had um, to his, he basically was without oxygen too long. And, um, and I remember that they had a daughter who was uh, of teenage years and um, the mother said, no, send her home, send her home. And I, at that moment, you know, stood up and became an advocate for, for her. And I said, no, it's important. If she wants to be here and she wants to be part of this, you need not shut her out. It's very important that if a child wants to be a part of this passage of life in life, this, um, this turning of events in life that they are allowed to because a child will create a more unrealistic reality for themselves, which is probably 10 times worse than the reality of the situation. So I always encourage them. Um, I studied uh, grief, children and grief in in my psychology undergraduate studies. That was my um, focus was children and grief. 
and understanding that children can understand the process uh, and absence of a human being to death as early as the age of two. They just don't know what it is. They don't, they don't comprehend yet educationally um, or developmentally that it's actual death and it's final, um, but they sense absence. And in that absence can, can warrant outbursts of behavior. And so that can happen again in, you know, any, any amount of years uh, of a child uh, in their, in, you know, in their young adolescent years or young teenage years, um, that if they're not given that opportunity to help them understand why they're feeling the way they feel in this absence that was created by death, and we don't label it properly for them, they're going to continuously try to seek and understand it themselves. And we are their teachers, we're their parents, we're here to help them understand these things. And to shut them out of that, to me, is an injustice. It's misinforming to them. Um, so I was strongly encouraging this family to allow their daughter to be a part of this because she wanted to be a part of this. Uh, she showed interest, never forced them, but allowed them if they do show the interest because they're young enough, I should say, if they're, if they're curious enough to take themselves to it, know that they're mature enough to try and understand it because they want to be a part of it. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, the same with my son, when my son, when my son, um, when we were at my sister's funeral, my mother was trying to keep my son from walking, uh, in the procession. Uh, and, um, she was trying to shield him. And I said, no, I grabbed him and let him join me. I said, if, if he wants to let him be a part of it, don't hold them back because it's, it's then becomes a natural part of life that they don't feel like they're being left out from or feel like they need to try to understand on their own. So I think that is really important. And I think that, you know, with the museum, it's, it's, it's a wonderful neutral environment for people to be able to bring their children and talk about the subject of death because they're exposed to death as early as the age of what one, when you put them in front of cartoons. Um, and, and, and so it's important, you know, to be able to walk them uh, through what death is and what death looks like in reality, rather than how they're being shown through video games or movies or television. Um, what better gift you can give your child than to help them understand. And so I looked at the museum as an educational platform for just that, um, to help children understand it and help parents explain it. This also dovetails with your own experience, doesn't it? The yes, fact that you yes, weren't able does. to talk about I wish it. they had I wish they had the museum of Nash, the the National Museum of Funeral History when I was ten. I'd have been there probably every weekend. <laughs> well, when you encounter these kids, kids that visit, kids that are interested, what do they say? Well, they ask the most, well, to us, we think it's blunt, right? It's a blunt question. But to them, they don't, they're, they're not afraid of death. They, they, they haven't built enough uh, um, experiences in life with the subject matter of death or the emotional effects that death has on them. They really haven't experienced that enough. So them, to them, 
uh, learning about death might just be as simple as learning about biology, right? It's, it's just a, it's another element of learning about something that happens in life. Um, so they just ask, well, you know, sometimes I'll say, well, what will happen when they die? And I just will explain to them that, you know, they're going to stop breathing. And then after that, the heart will stop beating and then they'll just look like they're asleep, but they're not. They have gone on to heaven or depending upon the religious belief of that family, I will explain that it, you know, that that's, you know, that's another important element that people don't realize with funeral directors and nurses and healthcare professionals is being respectful and honoring the religious beliefs of of the people you take care of um, and the people that you wait you wait on because that's very important for you not to interject your beliefs system onto them you allow them to embrace their religious beliefs because death and religion go hand in hand for you know there's religious um, rituals and customs that are are very much ingrained in a lot of different religions It's a highly emotional circumstance that you're describing. I think it would be difficult to not interject yourself in the in your own beliefs. One of the things I think that you know when we're going through our funeral directing school, um, when we're we're under we, we all have to go through this like the psychology classes and stuff like that one of the most important elements that besides having empathy and compassion is understanding boundaries because boundaries are very important in, in, in dealing with families and in especially dealing with families in a highly emotional situation. Um, you have to have boundaries, not only for yourself to, to so that you don't become all consumed, but you have to have boundaries for the family um, so that you don't project yourself onto the family and you don't allow the family to project their emotions and or anger onto you. So boundaries are very important. Because believe it or not, there are some pretty interesting situations that come out when somebody dies or they're dying. Um, funeral directors sometimes become counselors in trying to help mitigate family disputes um, someone doesn't want to talk to so-and-so and you're just like, really? Your loved one's on their deathbed. This isn't the time or the place. But again, it's a highly emotionally charged situation. And sometimes there's people that can't, that their emotional reaction takes on a different face. And outbursts can happen. And you just have to know when to go in and say, you know, this isn't the place. We need to take it somewhere else. So many things, so many things people don't realize. <laughs> yeah, so you're, 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 you know, obviously a medical professional in that, in that instant. You're also a counselor. I guess it's a different type of medical professional, but you're, you're, you're playing so many different roles at the same time. Yes. And, and, and you have to understand, you know, what role is needed at what time. You know, it's, it's like you say, you have a, a whole bunch of different hats. You just got to figure out which one needs to be worn at that moment. With that, I, I'd love to pivot into funeral history for a moment. 
How long have you worked at the museum? Uh, 17 years. And I, I'd like you, I guess I'll start broad. Sure. Are there, have there been turning points in the history of funerals in this country where the, the, the timbre of them changed? Yes, definitely. There, there's, there's quite a few turning points. Um, you know, of course, you know, during the Civil War time period, that was a huge turning point for our industry. Um, before, you know, caring for the dead, it was um, quite a rapid process um, because, you know, a lot of times death um, came about by diseases which were highly communicable. They spread it, they spread very easy. So caring for the dead was immediate burials, you know, uh, you know, rid the body of any uh, ability to contaminate the live people. Uh, during the Civil War is when the technique of embalming or the practice of embalming came to America. Um, and it was actually during the Civil War battle itself where um, surgeons who understood the anatomical makeup of the human body um, and Dr. Thomas Holmes himself came up with the chemical compound makeup, if you will, of embalming fluid, uh, which they found that if you put it into the normal circulatory system of the body, meaning the arteries and the veins, you pump it through just like the blood pumps through the blood. Uh, yeah, you pump it through like the heart pumps through the blood of, in the body. Then that chemical will create a preservation type status to the body, which in turn does two things. It preserves the body so the soldiers can be returned home to their families uh, to give closure to the families and help, you know, so they can properly bury their loved one. Um, but it also, they realized, did uh, like a decontamination almost, right? So if sometimes there was disease that would, um, that could be animate, um, let me see how many have a proper word, you know, if a body, when a body dies, the rats come about and stuff like that and tend to, you know, I'm getting grotesque here, but reality is the rodents and the bugs eat on the body and which can spread a disease, which can be spread to the live soldiers. And so to conserve the fighting strength, they say, well, let's decontaminate these dead bodies to keep them from getting diseased. Um, and when, because, you know, the soldiers had to handle their own deceased soldiers. And so in that handling process of the dead bodies, they were afraid they would get a contamination of the disease the bodies was carrying based off of it, them getting it from like the rats was that could have been feasting on it the night before. Um, so it was, it was a, a twofold process, preservation and disinfection. And so that morphed into um, the actual profession of the embalmer where the, um, the surgeons were our first embalmers but during the war, they needed the surgeons more for the live soldiers, you know, to, to you know, put, do surgery on them, uh, tend to their wounds so they could, you know, continue on in the battle. So they just basically trained the layperson to be an embalmer. And then that's where our profession came to be, uh, was we were trained by the surgeons because they, surgeons had to teach us how to introduce the chemicals and the anatomical makeup of the human body. Um, interesting enough, also, during the anatomical studies of 
the for the doctors, that's where grave robbing came in. Um, they used to go and rob the graves for the bodies because they would pay people money for cadavers because they needed a cadaver in order to do these studies and understand the anatomical makeup of the body. And a cadaver would only last so long. So if you had a group of medical students this week, they all went in and studied on that cadaver. Well, there was no preservation te techniques back then. That cadaver was only good for so long. They needed another cadaver for the next group of students. Uh, and so that's where I, why grave wrapping was so popular back in the day. Um, so, uh, but then they started the, now they have the anatomical donation program in our day, in our uh, time period of life, they have an anatomical donation program where you actually can um, donate your body to science uh, for that purpose of studies. Um, and then um, the um, technique of embalming came to be. Um, and then, you know, other turning points. Well, uh, before we go to another turning point, I'd like to learn a bit more about this world that you, you present, if you don't mind. Yeah. Okay, so um, um, we're on a Civil War battlefield, and we've embalmed these bodies, and we're sending them back home to once they came. Uh, are, was this more uh, northern troops or southern troops or both? Um, you saw it more in the north because, you know, there was cost involved in sending these troops back home. So it was more, you saw it more in the north, uh, not so much in the south. And then um, if it, when you come to the museum, we have what they call a Fisk coffin. Very, very heavy, heavy metal coffins that if the soldier was so injured that, you know, obviously the circulatory system was compromised and we couldn't utilize it to embalm, then um, they were put in this Fisk coffin. And so, believe it or not, in New York, one time they had tore down a building and they were excavating the ground and they came across an old Civil War soldier burial ground because it had lots of fist coffins in wow. it. Yeah. So most of the soldiers were sent back to the north. Okay. So let's follow this back. I'm assuming by train, maybe by horse. I think mostly by train, but there, I don't, uh, in our documentation uh, at the museum to, of what I've studied, I, I can't speak 100% to that because, of course, our focus in our studies was preparing the body. Once the body left the hands of the embalmer, how they left, we really didn't know. Do you know how funerals themselves were handled in that era? So, let's see, Civil War. I know that in the early 1900s, um, most of them were, I mean, we do have the Victorian vignette that's at the museum that talks, speaks to how the funerals were handled in the um, early 1900s. Um, and if I can back up, you were talking about train I do believe that most of them went by train because we actually have a cart in the museum. It's painted green. And this cart was at the train stations and it was purposely painted green because that cart was only to be used to carry the remains of the soldiers coming off the train, not the baggage. 
So you're right. Most of them went by train. Wow. So. Any sense of. Go ahead. Any sense of how common these cards were? I don't know. This one was found in a field. It had to be restored. Um, so I'm, I'm sure that most of the train stations probably had them. Yeah, you know, the larger train stations. Yeah, not the smaller ones, but the larger ones. Yeah, because soldiers came from all over. Like, uh, mm -hmm. so I'm sure there were a lot of dead from a lot of different places. Yeah, and I and I would liken it to being like we do soldiers nowadays when we take them off a plane. You know, there's there's a lot of respect uh, rendered. Uh, when we're loading and unloading a soldier from a plane, I'm sure they did the same thing on a train because, you know, we tend to be somewhat traditional in the military. Wow. So it's 1800s, it's late 1800s. We have this transformational, tra bleh, we have this transformational moment in the country, the Civil War. This is one of those things that sort of sticks in bombing. Mm -hmm. Did it quickly spread or was there a period of, uh, you know, of some people do it and some people not? No, it was, it was, it spread quite quickly. And it's interesting now because nowadays people are just like, uh, I don't know if I want to be embalmed, you know, cause they're looking more to the green, go green. You know, even in burial, go green. And uh, um, so um, it's been, it's, it's spread quite quickly because it was a form of preservation. Uh, and it allowed people the opportunity to come in and say, um, to, to, to render their respects to their loved one and to say goodbye. Um, whereas before, you know, you, you couldn't, you couldn't hold on to a dead body for, for a longer period of time because they would start to decompose and the smells would just be so rancid that people didn't want to be around them. Um, and then if they died, died of a disease, you definitely don't want them to be around them. But there, there have been things that have been created in our profession uh, to help people still be able to say goodbye to someone even if they were diseased. Uh, we had an icebox coffin, um, the, the coffins that were from those earlier time periods, you notice they have like a glass uh, front to them around the face. And that was so that the coffin could be completely sealed, but you could still look in and see your loved one, but not be exposed to them in case they were contaminated. So uh, profession, the profession evolved so many ways uh, based on the, the humanistic need to be able to say goodbye and have that closure. Has embalming itself involved? No, embalming is still pretty much the same. Huh. I mean, the only, the only way that it evolved is that we went from hand pumps and gravity bottles to actual machines that make it a much, a much easier process. But no, the whole process is still the same. In injecting the uh, arteries and drain from the vein, still the same. So my relatives were likely injected with basically the same fluid as Civil War soldiers? No, the, the, the chemical itself, so the technique is pretty much the same. But ah. the chemical compounds that we use have changed. 
So if your loved ones or, you know, or your family members from decades ago died during the Civil War and they got embalmed, then they more than likely got involved with an embalming fluid that contained arsenic, uh. which we all know is very poisonous. And so they eventually were able to come up with a chemical compound that didn't include arsenic, which we have today, which is the formaldehyde. Um, but the formaldehyde is a carcinogen, so pick your poison. I would think that would make old graveyards pretty dangerous places. Well, if you notice, there's not a lot of thing crops and stuff that grow around graveyards. There's not water uh, lines that go through graveyards. Um, and that's the reason why cremation um, came about. Uh, cremation, believe it or not, just like embalming, came out of the, uh, out of the knowledge and hands of a surgeon Cremation also came out of the knowledge in the hands of a doctor because they believe they believe that when people die of a disease and they bury that body in the ground, it will contaminate the soil and contaminate the water and the earth that grows the crops. So they said, well, if there's a diseased body, we need to burn it. And that's where cremation came. And you learn about that also at the museum in our history of cremation exhibit. And it talks about, um, excuse me, his name has left me at this moment. I apologize. No I'm worries. I remember all my significant doctors in history. Um, yeah, I cannot think of his name at this moment. All I can, all I can see is Dr. Thomas Holmes. Um, but yeah, it'll pop up when, I, when I'm not thinking about it. But the doctor that, uh, that created the first uh, crematory in Washington, Pennsylvania. What time period are we talking? <laughs> Ooh, uh, that's got to be in the late 1800s, perhaps. Okay. It's still standing. It's still standing in Washington, Pennsylvania. It's now under the authority of the Historical Society of Washington, Pennsylvania. And if you travel to Pennsylvania, you, you can schedule a tour and actually go see it. Yeah. But we, have repl we replicated it and put it in our museum. So if you don't go to Washington, Pennsylvania, you can still see what it looks like by going to our museum. And you actually step foot into it. Well, I'm not sure which part of Pennsylvania uh, it is in, but I, 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 I'm I'm in New York, so. Oh, it's um, in Washington, Pennsylvania. Okay, so it's a small town in Washington, Pennsylvania. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Are is there a period of funeral history? that you're enthralled with? Mm, is there a period of, wow, that is a, that's a fully loaded question. Um, probably the one that I find most interesting would probably be the Victorian time period when funerals were conducted at the home, you know, it, because there's just a lot of, uh, of traditions that came out of that time period and, and then so much care that went into the body and, and, the, and the, the respect that was rendered. And there's still so many, like I say, um, that came out of that. So, yeah, I want to say the Victorian time period, I, I think, has um, what I appreciate the most in history. Tell me more. Like, what 
what changed what how did they approach the body uh in the victorian time period so the um you know the the shift we were talking about shifts in the in the industry right so the next big shift was during the victorian time period the the 19th century mm -hmm. the early 19th century when funerals were conducted at home uh, the embalming was done at home uh, the, the the body was laid out for a wake traditionally lasting for three days done in the home all the flowers were were adorned around the body um, so i'm going to pick all of that apart now so an a funeral director uh, when the town's you know pretty small right if a disease came to the town he would you know death would start to become a little bit more prevalent in a in a short amount of time and he had all this equipment he would have to take in order to care for that body he would have all his embalming equipment so he can embalm the body he would have his cooling board so that he could cool the body to room temperature because the body would either get a fever or what we call an agonal fever which still happens today anybody who's meeting death could get a agonal fever it's just part of the process of dying or they had a fever from their disease that they were dying from so you cannot introduce the chemicals into a body that has a degree temperature of 98 or above because now you're going to change your chemical compound makeup and how it's going to react to the body so you've got to cool that body down to a room temperature so we have what they call a cooling board uh, that you lay the body on allow the air to roll around it and bring that temperature down. Then you embalm the body. Then you take them down and you put them into, traditionally, most of the Victorian homes, if they were of wealth, would be in a couch casket, sitting on a set of beers, uh, which hold the casket. Then you'd bring the torchier lamps uh, that would help emanate beautiful lighting onto the body so that the, the death didn't look so in your face kind of thing. They had a softer appearance, looked more sleeping. They'd have the flowers so they help mask the smell of the death or the odor that the body might put off oh. while you're coming and paying your last respects. Yeah, so you would smell the beautiful fragrance of the flowers rather than the rancid smell of death. So that's why flowers... Yes. Oh, that's why flowers came part of the funeral. Nowadays, we use it as a sign of sympathy and respect and condolences. We still that carry that tradition on. And then we would have, you know, then the funeral director would bring the organ to play the music in the background and the religious stuff that was needed for any customs and rituals. So just a lot of stuff that the funeral director would have to bring to the home just to care for one deceased body. So the funeral would take place in the parlor portion of the home. So if you envision a Victorian house in the parlor area where people would come and, and gather for parties, but then when somebody died, they'd gather for a funeral. The wake would be for three days to prove that they were true in fact dead and not going to wake up because it was learned in the 15th and 16th time, uh, 15th and 16th century, they learned that people were being buried alive. And so the wake was a tradition to help curtail that. And so the, to keep people, if they had a fear of being buried alive or they weren't sure they were truly dead, they came up with a device that would tie a string around the finger, run it up through the earth, attach it to the bell. And if they woke up and started scratching on the top of the casket, unbeknownst to them, they would be ringing a bell that was attached to their finger. 
and they would be saved by the bell. That's where that term comes from. Mm. And then if their bell never rang, they were a dead ringer. That's where that phrase comes from. That's where that phrase comes from. And then because people tend to all retreat home at night, when the sun goes down, people go home, they get ready for dinner, they go to bed. So if somebody were to wake up in the middle of the night that was buried alive because they didn't have the abilities to determine true death back then, they didn't know about an EKG or an EEG or to check the pupils for reflect, you know, for, um, for uh, reaction from light or put a mirror under the nose to look for the mist on the mirror. They didn't know that these were obvious signs to check for of life versus death. So they'd be buried alive unbeknownst to them because they might be in a coma from their illness and it very much looks like death. I don't know how many times I've walked past the patient's room and had to stand there and look to see if they were breathing because they look like they're dead. And so I truly understand why you would tie a string on a finger back in the day if you didn't have the medical technology to say you were truly dead. And so at night when these people would go home and retreat to their homes and go to sleep, they needed somebody to stay in the graveyard at night to listen for the bells. And that's where the graveyard shift comes from. The shift at night to work in the graveyards listening for the bells to ring. But we still use it today, but it's not to work in the graveyard. It just means that you work at night. You work the graveyard shift. So that's where that came from. Now I'll give you one more term that came out of this Victorian time period. And this is why I like it so much because it has so much interesting tie-ins to the things that we, we, we use today and we don't realize it, right? So as the deaths became, uh, as the, the small towns began to grow and if a disease hit that small town, the deaths were quite uh, abundant, which made it a huge undertaking for the funeral director to take all of his uh, equipment from house to house to house to prepare the deceased for the wake and then the burial. He said, wow, why don't I just keep all my equipment in one place and bring the bodies to the building? And that's where the funeral parlor came in. It came out of the parlor of a home. And that's why when you go into a funeral parlor, now known as a funeral home because it evolved from parlor to home. But if you go in, it kind of looks like the, the gathering space, kind of like the living room of a house, right? That's why, because it came out of the parlor design concept of the Victorian homes in the Victorian period. So now that room that people would gather, the parlor portion of the house where people would gather was no longer needed for funerals or the dead. So they labeled that room now as the living room a room only for the living because you took your dead now to the funeral parlor or funeral home. Fascinating in all accounts. Yeah. Why did things switch? Why did we leave? Why did we take funerals out of homes? Why do we take caring for our dead loved one family members out of the homes and into the hospitals? Same concept almost. We became 
I think we just became less connected with our, our, our responsibilities to each other as human beings in the family unit. And we began to spread out. And when the funeral director was responsible of bringing all their equipment into these homes to prepare the deceased, that's when it professionally came out of the homes and into the funeral parlor. It, it was more practical to bring a body to the building rather than bringing all the equipment to all the individual buildings, right? It was just more practical. And then all the people came to the funeral home and, and gathered. But to your question, I'm gonna take your question and not tie it to the Victorian time period, the early 19th century. I'm gonna take your question and tie it to now, right? Why do we send our loved ones off to be cared for by complete strangers? Why do we send our deceased now to a funeral home to be cared for? Why don't we, why are we no longer involved in that part of life? And I think that's a question that still has yet to be answered. But there's a lot of different things you can look at. There's family dynamics, there's family relationships, there's jobs, there's financial obligations. There's so many different things that, that are part of that bigger picture as to why we do it. But if you wanna to get to the core of it, why are we as humans allowing our family members to be cared for by other people now? both in life and death. I mean, doctors, yeah, you gotta, you gotta take them off to be cared for by a doctor. But when it comes to them dying, I, I think it's important that we should, at least if we can, if we have the means and we have the emotional stamina to, to embrace and, and take care of our loved ones at the time of death, I think it would be healthy. It's more practical, as you say, it's also more distant. Yes. And when you create distance, you tend to not feel. You, you remove yourself from the emotional impact that is, that is waiting for you when, when, when your loved one passes away. This one hits home in a number of ways. Um, My uh, younger brother, one of them, had uh, pretty severe disabilities, has pretty severe disabilities. And my mother gave up basically her entire life to care for him. And now she's, at, she's in a nursing home at the moment. And that's a question that has weighed on me. And it's interesting because I was caring for my mother for the last, I want to say eight years. Um, in the last three years, she became bedridden and I was caring for, so I literally would get up in the morning, take care of her, go do my work, come home, take care of her, go to the hospital, take care of patients, come home, take care of her. Wow. And I did that for a very long time. And it, and, and then, but at the same time, I, 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 if I needed to travel somewhere, I, I didn't have that ability because my mom needed someone 24 seven. 
Um, and it unfortunately came down to my daughter's wedding and, um, I needed, you know, needed to go there to be the, my daughter's wedding. And I had just was going to put mom in for respite care because, um, respite care is giving the caregiver two weeks break, mm-hmm. you know, rightfully so. And, and I had such a struggle, you know, navigating the system to do that. Even though I'm in the healthcare profession, it's still quite an arduous task. Um, and when I went to go consider bringing her home, the nurses, they told me she requires a lot of care. And I cried. I felt so guilty. Um, it, it, it was quite a two, three month process for me to deal with internally. Um, so I feel your pain, James. I feel it. I know it. I, I, I get it. I feel guilty. But at the same time, I understand the toll it was taking on me. And, and, and now, I mean, she's great. She's happy. She's got friends. She's got people she can talk to, interact with. I mean, before she was just in her room, you know, and she was just at the mercy of friends come and visit her, you know, from time to time. And then I was her person. Um, and then she watched TV all day. And then now they, they got the resources to get her out of bed and put her in a chair and let her play bingo. And so it is hard, but, but I had to see uh, the brighter side of it, right? But I did tell them, when my mom gets to the point where she is hospice, and I know what it looks like because they tried to tell me she is, and I'm like, no, she's not there yet. I know my mom. But when she does get to that point, I will bring her home. And I will do whatever it takes to care for her, and I will allow her to pass away in home with family as much as possible that I, I I do want to do. And I don't know if it's so much important for her as it is for me. Thanks for listening to all of the above. Let me know what you think at James Brown TV anywhere. And of course at jamesbrowntv.substack.com. Paid subscribers can listen to more of my conversation with Genevieve now. Everyone else will hear the next part next week.